0: We're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today.
1: Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support.
2: 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C. I'm very pleased to be joined today by two of our great regulars, of course, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, Law Center. How are you doing, Rosa?
3: Good Tag, dog, David. I'm I'm here in Vienna, Austria today. Are you? I am.
2: Oh wow, that's you know my homeland. Well, my <laughs> father's my father's homeland. I can say Mitlaga, which is really the most important. That's the thing most you important want to know. thing
3: because everything. It doesn't sound that appealing when, but in English, but everything is better Mitlaga. Okay,
2: yeah, everything except Wiener Schnitzel.
3: Even also, Peter joined Churchill actually would be better with Mitch. With, with, with Mitch Lager. Lager. Yeah. yeah. Well, also joined, of
2: course, by uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Uh, how are you doing today, Ed?
4: Delightfully, thank you.
2: Delightfully, we'll be the judge of that. And we are joined by our friend Alon Pinkus, who is a columnist, former Israeli diplomat, and a high advisor to prime ministers of Israel. How are you doing, Alon?
0: I'm good. I, I, I just apropos uh, your uh, uh, previous chat. I, I was dejected to find out that Anschluss actually means a connecting flight. I mean, uh, the, the, <laughs> that, that put the entire history. I you walk into a, an, an airport in Germany and it says Anschluss all over the place. And, you know, I was young. I needed the money.
4: <laughs>
2: what? This is stirred dark real fast. Anyway, so what I wanted to do today was turned to the three of you, great minds all, and then after the break, we will turn to a fourth great mind, that of Kim Gaddis, journalist and author of a great book on Iran and Saudi Arabia, to talk about the consequences of the Chinese brokered arrangement between Saudi and Iran to reestablish relations, which came as a shock to a bunch of people, including Bibi Netanyahu, who sort of his response, I, I believe, sort of re- resembled that of Ralph Cramden of the honeymooners in almost any difficult situation where he sort of says, Hamana, Hamina, Hamina. He, you know, kind of didn't really know how to respond to it. There was an interesting response from U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who essentially said, We couldn't have done this. But we don't see it as necessarily a bad thing. Having said that, I've talked to a lot of people here in Washington about this, Salon, and I don't think anybody understands what it means. So maybe we could
0: start with you. What, is it, what does it all mean? I'm honored and flattered to join the ranks for those who say, okay, I don't know. You know, it's, it's only been 200 years since the French Revolution, so it's going to take time, as Chuan Lai said, a famous. That actually, I just want to say, that actually didn't happen that way. That's
2: an apocryphal story. But anyway, go on.
0: Nor did she ever say if, uh, if they don't have uh, red. each uh, kid. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. But um, there, are, there are two aspects here. One is the, the, the bilateral Saudi-Iranian if if you will. And the second is obviously what concerns some people in D.C. is the Chinese involvement or Chinese mediation. As for the Saudi-Iranian thing, it was in the making for the last two, three years. Uh, anyone who's been following this has seen a, a gradual but but very clear shift in Saudi policy toward dialogue with the Iranians. That doesn't mean the idea was to to lower the enmity and to lower the uh, 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 the level of uh, belligerent rhetoric. It doesn't mean they're becoming friends, and it doesn't mean that this agreement will be implemented in full. What it does mean is that Saudi Arabia reached the conclusion that it needs some kind of a uh, ongoing mitigating circumstances dialogue with the Iranians. The Iranians obviously need this to break the isolation there. They are close, they share interests, and they're willing to put aside, for the time being, a civilizational enmity or rivalry between Shiite Islam, and Sunni Islam, on top of which the Iranians, or the Persians rather, not the entire Iranian people, view the Arabs as people who have polluted Islam. I'm, not, I'm no theologian, I'm no Islamicist, but, but this is how they view each other. So in that respect, there's nothing wrong with that. The Chinese involvement is something else, and I, and I have to say, David, I... I tend to agree, although it's premature with what Jay Sullivan said, okay, that China is flexing diplomatic muscle as opposed to economic muscle is fine. And that China is the, uh, uh mediator here. That's also fine. I don't see China supplanting the U S in any, in any significant respect here. And if it does, then the Iranians and the Saudis have a problem that were 10 years premature for us. Uh, in in terms of assessing, but this is not a good thing. They don't want China to supplant the U.S., substitute the U.S., uh, uh, replace the U.S. It's not going to happen anyway. So in that respect, I don't see that as a problem. One last sentence, I'll let the other friend, the whole colleagues and friends, that Israel was taken by surprise is nonsense, and I'm using the most Mellow term I can uh, um, come up with, not to uh, pollute the uh, the podcast. This is nonsense. Israeli intelligence knew this was coming. The Iranians have made great strides in the Gulf. The Saudis have screwed up the war in Yemen. They knew they needed to uh, get close to the um, uh, Iranians, as did the Emiratis, United Arab Emirates, and that's fine. That Israel pretends to be surprised and taken aback by this is only because Israeli policy is premised on a, on a false and flawed assumption that Netanyahu manufactured that there is some Sunni-Israeli axis, that there is a Sunni-Arab-Israeli coalition against Iran. He just neglected to ever ask them if they were willing to join such a coalition.
2: That's a great start. There's still a lot of questions hanging in the air about all of this. I'll turn to Ed next for his reaction, because we have a deal here in writing that Rosa made us sign that says, whenever we have a tough question in which nobody's really got a clear answer, I can only ask her last.
3: But if it's an easy question, you have to ask me first, because exactly. otherwise everybody exactly. else says all the obvious stuff. Uh, well, I mean, let me, let me sort of agree
4: with that on about Jake Sullivan. I, one of the things I, I, do, I, I really like about Jake is that he's intellectually very honest. You know, this guy isn't a propagandist. He, he genuinely speaks authentically and with integrity. And I think he did on this point that, A, this is actually objectively a good thing, whoever brokers it, for whatever reason it happens, to tamp down this massive uh, Sunni-Shia schism as manifested between the Saudis and and the Iranians, but that America couldn't have done it. And it's true. It's isolated Iran. It wants uh, wants Iran to do something it's never going to do, particularly now. Which is to get rid of its nuclear program. So it has no equities in Iran. It couldn't possibly play honest broker. And it's not had particularly good relations with Saudi Arabia. So that was an honest and accurate statement. And it's still a good thing that it's happened. It's a good thing that the Yemen war, which has been quiescent for the last year or so, might be permanently quiescent, or at least for the foreseeable future. That it's been a horrific war uh, with extraordinary human toll. And anything that can ease that is a good thing. Ditto in terms of Syria as a battleground, a proxy battleground, and all kinds of other proxy battlegrounds. To the extent this d- can be implemented, and I'm sure a- 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 Alan is right that it's um, you know, it's not going to be implemented in full. It's a good thing for everybody to stabilize them at least. But with um, great responsibility for China, this is, namely being a broker of a major rapprochement between two significant medium-sized powers. Also comes also comes a cost, you know. You to some degree implicitly have to underwrite this. You now have an equity in sustaining this. This is not a freelance one-off Chinese sort of uh, let's just stabilize things and then we'll leave the field. They're now staking a longer-term claim to having a more than just a mercantilist interest in the Middle East. They 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 now have a, a geopolitical interest and in stake in in the Middle East, and so. I think it's good news. I think it's good news on many levels, um, not not just for the Middle East, but also for the United States, that there are people, there are other players who are capable of assuming some of that that geopolitical burden. And I know that's an unfashionable view because we're living in Washington, in a zero sum town. But I think anything that makes China behave like a more responsible stakeholder and incentivizes it to do more of it is a good thing. Excellent,
2: excellent insight there. What about you, Rosa?
3: I was just thinking it's so ironic. One of the reasons that the U.S. has never been able to make its so-called pivot to Asia fully is that the Middle East remains such a trouble spot for us that we, we can't quite draw our attention away. And ironically, um, thanks to Chinese mediation and diplomacy, a major source of potential problems in the Middle East is now possibly, we hope going to be much, much more stable, which in turn will enable us to focus more on China, which we've been wanting to do all along. And in fact, we need to, because it also illustrates the fact that we have become less relevant. I mean, I, I agree with Alon and, and Ed. You know, first of all, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, there's no, there's no benefit to us in saying this is bad or something. I mean, how would that, that would not help us in any way. It is good. It's a good thing. Anything that brings increased hope of stability Increased likelihood of amity between Shia and Sunnis in that region is a good thing, I think, for us and for the world. The fact that it wasn't us and that w- that it was China points to our diminishing importance. But it is what it is. I mean, complaining about it's not going to change it. And I think that if anything, as as Ed says, you know, this puts this puts China in a position where to, to keep face, they have to they have a stake in making sure this works. Which in turn means that there's pressure on China to be a positive actor in, in our favorite system, the international rules based system, such as it is, and that's a good thing too. You know, it actually gives us something to say to China: Hey, thanks, guys. You know, good job. Now keep at it, keep up your responsibility. So I, I actually th- think this is somewhere between neutral for the United States and the world, and actually quite good for the United States and the world.
2: Well, it's interesting, and I think also the obligation of China may be seen uh, by the Chinese as an opportunity to maintain influence in this part of the world, because the economic and other kinds of transactions that may be associated with their involvement there may give them more leverage going forward. I think when I was going into this conversation, if this were like Groucho Marx's show, This Is Your Life, the little duck would have fallen down when, uh, when Rosa said, spoke of the U.S.'s declining relevance, because I, I'm not sure what this means in the long run, except that it means the U.S. will be less relevant going forward. There are other factors that, that support that, by the way. And frankly, I think it was an objective of this administration for the U.S. to be a little less relevant in the Middle East. So I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing i got a couple of sort of rapid-fire questions I'd like to direct to each of you. Alon, one of the things that people have talked about with regard to this is, what does this mean for the Israeli-Saudi rapprochement? What does this mean for the ability of the Israelis to fly jets across Saudi airspace when they want to go and bomb the Iranians?
0: I don't think a, an Israeli-Saudi refreshment was, was actually a real thing in the sense that Israel is thinking of this normalization of relations, establishment of full diplomatic relations. That ain't going to happen without paying in Palestinian currents. And the current government in Israel, engulfed in a constitutional crisis of its own making, is ill-prepared, unready, and unwilling to entertain the, the Palestinian issue. So, a best case scenario for the Saudis would have been to somehow semi normalize relations. But for that, you need the US, not China. For that, you need Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, to invite MBS and Mr. Netanyahu, who is the current prime minister, to the White House. That's not going to happen because the US relations with the Saudis, Saudis have soured. I wish the US would have been tougher on the Saudis. Given the last six months, David, you and I had some this is slight disagreement on this uh, a few weeks ago on Twitter. So it's not a big deal, but I, I, I don't think that can happen. So in terms of Israel versus the Sonys are going to say, we're fine with um, uh, formalizing commercial ties, taking the mistress out of the uh, behind the curtains and, 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 and saying, yes, we have a commercial relationship, an economic relationship, if you will, uh, with Israel. I do not see full diplomatic relations. As for flying over Saudi's airspace, Saudi Arabia's airspace on on, en route to Iran, that's not gonna happen without the US anyway. That's just not tenable, that's not just feasible, that's not going to happen. And you know, if Israel decides on its own volition unilaterally to disregard US, the US and and inflict whatever limited damage, and I emphasize limited damage you could do to the Iranian nuclear uh, infrastructure program, and the Saudis resist, so Israel's going to fly over Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabian aerospace regardless. I don't think that's an issue. My point here, and I'll defer to the, the, to, to the other friends, my point here is slightly different. We all talk about this, this is a good thing. And this stabilizes the middle East. And Ed was right in talking about the Yemen war and, and Rosa was right about it. Doesn't matter who, who mediated, if it stabilizes, it's a good thing, but what it does not do, it does not curtail Iran's foreign policy. It does not change the nuclear ambitions that it has. It does not change the missile development program that it has, and it does not change the proxy system, the proxy network or, or web that it put in place, that it installed in place in Iraq and in Syria and in Lebanon and in Gaza and in other places. It remains to be seen if indeed this is just a Saudi-Iranian bilateral mitigation of, uh, 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 of uh, pressures or if this is a major change in the landscape and the geopolitical Landscape. I don't know that yet. I really. Well, there've been
2: other changes in the geopolitical landscape recently in that part of the world that I do want to get to because you know the Emiratis reopened relations with Assad, and there has been, and this is what I would like to direct my question to Ed on some kind of agreement between the Iranians and the IAEA with regard to the Iranian nuclear program, which is certainly encouraging. One Middle East hand with whom I was discussing this just yesterday suggested that uh, you could see both of these things as a sign that the sanctions were really taking a toll on Iran and that they needed to deal with their economic situation, which was related also to some of the instability that they've seen in their streets, first and foremost, and in, in doing this deal with uh, the Saudis, but also with the Chinese and doing the step they've taken with the IAEA, Uh, they're indicating that they want to address in a constructive way some of these economic things. What do you think, Ed?
4: That has to be a, a sort of constant and very strong incentive to be more in compliance or less out of compliance with the former suspended JCPOA, whatever we're calling it. You know, they They don't expect to have big investment or trade with the United States, but it does open up Europe again. China, of course, has really been filling the gap with Iran. I mean, the massive, massive trade and purchaser of Iranian exports. You know, I guess when the original Iran nuclear deal was done towards the end of the Obama years, you know, it it was done because Obama wanted to get it done. And Kerry Kerry has the optimism gene and never stops. But it was also done because China and Russia were part of the group that were helping to negotiate this, and that added a real sort of global sort of weight to that. Since then, of course, you know Russia's invaded um, Ukraine. I mean, th- there's just no possibility of Russia and the United States cooperating in any diplomatic group. Iran, of course, is supplying the Russians with a lot of drones and other equipment on the battlefield um, in Ukraine, and China-U.S. relations have gone to not to hell, but they're getting pretty close to to a bad place. So the fact that China is now brokering this, I think in a way I was understating what good news that is. China now has an incentive to nudge Iran back into more cooperative behavior, and maybe substitute for Russia's sort of wildcard absence. So I imagine, you know, that that plus the, you know, Extremely straightened economic circumstances, an Iranian regime that's been facing protests, you know, on and off for months across its cities, uh, uh, you know, has produced this outcome. But what, you know, whatever the ingredients are there, this is something to be welcomed.
2: Yeah, but I would just sort of tie it back to the conversation that we had last week with Jeff Sonnenfeld about the sanctions in Russia and say, you know, there's a conventional wisdom in the policy community sanctions don't work. But it may be that in the case of Russia and in the case of Iran, they are working to some degree. And it's worth noting that. Rosa, I want to explore a little further this issue of, uh, of whether this is a, a good thing and what it means for the U.S.'s role in the region. As I, as I indicated earlier, not only has this happened, which raises China's influence uh, in the region and couldn't have happened with us, but we've also seen the, the Emiratis sort of have this rapprochement with uh, Assad, which is a, you know, a complete step away from any policy the US would have encouraged. And by the way, I always, whenever I mention the Emiratis, I say, another part of our company has done some events with them around things like climate and science and tech and women's issues. And uh, it's important to acknowledge that although we don't it doesn't affect our our positions here in on the editorial side of what we do but you you know have to say that Iran has grown closer to Russia in the recent past at the same time we would also have to say that the israelis don't seem to give a shit about what the united states thinks in terms of you know netanyahu's you know whole stance on democracy It could be that the Yemen war ends with the intervention of the Chinese as the broker and not with really the role of the U.S. It's, in fact, hard to see any part of the Middle East where U.S. influence has gone up. It looks like it's gone down everywhere. And it's hard to see any part of the Middle East where Chinese or Russian influence has gone down. Seems like it's gone up everywhere. So just you can react to any of that.
3: Well, as I said earlier, it's, 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 it's an irony, you know, be careful what you wish for. We've been we've been trying to find ways to disengage from the Middle East. Well, guess what? It turns out that we we have disengaged more or less. We've become irrelevant without really noticing. But, I, you know, to quote Teddy Roosevelt, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick. There is no value in the U.S. kicking and screaming about much of any of this because we are essentially impotent. And when you can't do anything, yelling about how bad it is just makes you look dumb. We are working on our big stick. I think I think that the Pentagon's primary focus in the last few years other than Ukraine obviously has been focusing on building up the specific kinds of systems that we think we would need were there to be any kind of conflict with China, which we do not want, but but nevertheless, you know, one of the ways of preventing a conflict with China is making sure the Chinese know that it would be at a very high cost and and keep them where they are right now, which you is you know the you're key.
2: relentless. You always want to bring AUKUS into this discussion. <laughs>
3: no, I did not. Let, I didn't say a word. Nobody said anything about submarines. That was you. <laughs> it's in your imagination. But but anyway, yeah. So so we're we're working on the big stick. We are speaking fairly softly in the Middle East, which I think is a good thing, not a bad thing. By the way, hello Emirates. Uh, Assad is a war criminal. Just just to point that out. So I, I'm not the United States. So I'll just say that. By no the way, so, so is so is Putin. So is Putin. Yes, thank you. We have lots of war criminals running around. And and I actually the one one small thing I would disagree with a little tiny bit. Maybe I'm not sure. I mean, you noted that given the, given Ukraine, there is no likelihood that R- Russia and the United States will cooperate on anything whatsoever. I hope that that is not true because, you know, it goes back to we all have interests that align sometimes. And while we shouldn't be too cozy with war criminals, at the same time, you know, to the extent that there are global crises such as climate change, when there is a possibility of doing small things where we agree to coordinate, that in and of itself is not a bad thing, obviously. And I I hope that we are not entering a world in which the freeze is so deep that all all dialogue is completely shut down because, you know, we 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 still have a tremendous number of global crises from climate change to whatever happens to be the next pandemic coming down the pike, because clearly there will be one. And I think that's obviously a, always an extremely tricky balance. How to keep the lines of communication open, both to avert crises such as accidental escalation on things like the, US, the Russia shooting down a U.S. drone, That kind of thing can easily escalate into horrible tragedy and misunderstanding if we don't have open lines of communication. And if we don't have open lines of communication, we miss opportunities to identify areas of shared interest, even in the midst of saying, hey, guess what? You're a war criminal. It's tricky, but I I think we have to try to do both because it's a complicated world.
2: It is a complicated world. And I would say one of the things that I find really striking about this is that this is the first big move in the Middle East that was engineered by China. China has also, however, played a leading role in dealing with the Taliban after our pulling out from there. China has also just announced or intimated that Xi Jinping will likely go to Moscow and then possibly to Kiev. And you can see the Chinese possibly seeking to play a bigger role there. We know they played a bigger role in Africa and Latin America recently. Five years ago, this kind of act of foreign policy from China would have been unimaginable. And we're in a very, very different world as a consequence of it. I think we've got about three, four, five minutes left. I, I just want to ask you each a kind of quickie question relating to uh, the other issue in the, in, the, in the region that I think warrants some special attention. Particularly since we have a lawn here, you mentioned a constitutional crisis in Israel. First of all, I I turn to our constitutional litmus test here, Rosa. Do we get a thumbs up? Do you call that a constitutional crisis in Israel?
3: Yes, I do, David. Absolutely.
2: Should she judges these things for us? <laughs> that, that. Um, she has said, you know, six inches of blood have to be flowing in the streets of Washington. For it to be a constitutional crisis here, but that's another issue. But things seem to be getting worse there in 60 seconds or less. How does that end up, Elon?
0: Look, this is a defining crisis. I, I, I usually hate the bumper sticker cliches and platitudes, but this is truly a defining crisis because this is about the very soul and the very tenets, the fundamental tenets of, of, of democracy. What Mr. Netanyahu is trying to do is nothing short of a, uh, um, uh, a coup d'etat. He is trying to alter the regime. Calling this a judicial overall is like calling a, a bank robbery, financial reorganization. It's nonsense that he is attacking, he's assaulting the fundamental principles of democracy, and he's following a textbook. He's following the Viktor Orban Hungarian model, and he's also following the Erdogan textbook from Turkey, because there is a uh, uh, there's an added dimension here of theocracy, messianism that manifests itself, not just in terms of the Israeli political system, but outside in, in the territories toward the Palestinians. So this is, is reaching very quickly within the next two, or three weeks, a crucible. If they do pass the legislation that changes, that amends the basic laws, which are the like the British, without the uh, Magna Carta, we have an unwritten constitution. If they do succeed in amending the basic laws, and then the Supreme Court, which is what they are expected to do, strike down these, this legislation, then we have the real crisis. And that is, that is two, three weeks ahead of us. So at this point, I got to tell you, you know, Saudi-Iranian rapprochement, that takes a back burner to what's going on in Israel because the pushback. And the countermeasures from these early public are durable and extraordinary in 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 both uh, scale and energy. What's your reaction to that, Ed?
4: Sorrow for what is going on um, on in your country. It, it is deeply alarming. Lack of surprise too. The open—I mean—in a way, Orbán learned from Bibi, right? Originally, he's kind of a pioneer of a lot of this, and there's a sort of um, symbiosis to these strongmen. And d- deep concern. This it might it might go wrong. My favourite character in, in, in Israeli public life is Bougie Herzog, um, Isaac Herzog, your your president. But of course, the president, and he's called this out as a, a full blown constitutional sort of attempted coup. But I don't think there's much he can do to to stop this as president, right? As-
0: well, as 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 we speak, as as literally as we speak, he's putting out his own outlines for. Uh, compromise, which is already gaining a lot of uh, um, um, negative responses from the demonstrators, from the protest movement, that he is cutting and pasting uh, too much of the government's ideas.
3: Final take on all this, Reza. It's very frightening, actually. I mean, it's, it's sort of shocking and frightening. It's, it's as shocking and frightening as what has been going on in the United States with Trump and Trump allies you know, that Israel, for all of its flaws, and obviously it has many, and we've talked about them on on our podcast, for all of its flaws, Israel is one of the few democracies that has had long-standing ties with the United States, has really been very solid historically on those issues, and the, the role of the Supreme Court in particular has been really important in Israel. You know, being a conscience for the nation and insisting when the Israeli government has taken some really bad paths uh, in sort of trying to pull them back to being compliant with international human rights norms, et cetera. So the, the effort to essentially eliminate judicial review for all intents and purposes is particularly scary. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen here either. But I think this is part of the general pattern we've obviously been seeing, which is that democracy is under threat uh, around the world.
2: Yeah, no question about that. I think uh, it's important that we look at this for what it is, but also for how it links to these other patterns that we've seen, whether in Hungary or in India or in Russia or in Brazil. Or I would add, and frankly, I'm surprised by how infrequently this comes up in the light of this, in the state of Georgia, where the Republican Party in the state of Georgia is seeking to make it possible for them to remove prosecutors, and to do so in a way that might have some impact on Fannie Willis and the Trump fake electors case. You know, prosecutorial independence is an important part of the judicial system as well. And I think as we see people attempt these things, uh, should they succeed, I suspect we will see them happening elsewhere. In any event, this has been uh, enlightening, as it always is with you guys. This is the point in the show where we'll take a break and say thanks to everybody in the general public for joining us and say there's more to come if you're a member. So hang around after the break if you're a member. And if you want to know what that more to come is, you've got to become a member. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month. The only thing I can tell you is in the course of the next month, I think we're going to be adding two and possibly three major new podcasts to our lineup. So this is the best possible time to become a member, because uh, it's probably going to become more expensive once we have more podcasts in the, in the network. I wouldn't know. I'm just guessing at that. So thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Alon. Thanks to everybody for listening. And if you're a member, stand by.